0: Good morning. Shall we stand? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there, was, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Charles, for reading.
1: Uh, let me jump on. Elder Keith mentioned that Black History Month event on Friday. This actually is a busy week coming up. I hope you'll participate in it all. So anybody know Wednesday's a big day in the church calendar? Anybody know what Wednesday is? Ash Wednesday. So we do in Ash Wednesday. We participate in an Ash Wednesday service together each year now. Reflect on the beginning of Lent. Receive the ashes as a sign of God's creation of us, our own mortality. So we warmly invite you to come participate in that. It's about an hour-long service. It'll be in here. 7 30 on Wednesday so hope you can come to that if you're part of midweek hopefully you already heard this announcement many times we don't have midweek this week we'll be doing Ash Wednesday then the Friday event we, we, we're, we're trying to be real intentional now once a quarter to do a joint event the church and the nonprofit. so these are really important when they come a lot of work goes into them, a lot of planning a lot of coming together of all different backgrounds so if you can be here at that event on Friday and it's going to be just an amazing program um, the youth are really driving this Black History Heritage Month event so that's going to be fantastic and then for those of you who are newer in the last couple of years of the church, we're going to do our first new member class in a while, um, a week from today, right after church. So there's a sign-up sheet in the lobby. If you already emailed me, you don't need to sign up again. But if you're coming to that, if you can sign up so we know food. And if you're an existing member and you want to come and be part of it and meet the new members, we would love for you to come too. So if you also would sign up so we have food. Sound good? All right. Well, let us jump into this passage. This is a really cool passage. Um, S- Sergio, if you don't mind, go ahead and just bring the passage up, and actually just leave it. I'd encourage you, if you got your Bibles or Bibles on your tablets or phones, whatever, or real Bible. Sorry, that's still real. If it's on your, I'm just feeling slightly superior because I've got a in-paper <laughs> Bible, and so um, we are. We're, we're, this is a, this is this this passage is filled with kind of fascinating um, insights, and so we're gonna like we're gonna kind of go old school a little bit, and we're just gonna like make our way through this passage verse after verse after verse because each one um, there's no wasted words in this encounter so the one thing I would remind us of before we start going through each one of these this is referred to as the transfiguration of Jesus I would remind you that we are in Matthew right now we're going through the lectionary readings through the book of Matthew so it's not chronological order it's kind of following the church calendar and so the readings will be connected to Lent starting next week um, but the writer Matthew, his purpose, his mission, how how God commissions him is really important for this. Matthew, more than any of the other writers, is specifically concerned with his Jewish brethren and sisters. All right, he wants the Jewish community, the, the nation of Israel, who has a history with God of thousands of years. He wants them to see that this person of Jesus is the promised Messiah that was the through line through the entire Hebrew scriptures. And we did this passage two weeks ago, I think, Matthew Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. This is Matthew's purpose above everything else is to show who Jesus is for all of us. But he really, this is a big part of what he's trying to do is show the Jewish community that all these things have always been so dear to them, like so dear, the things they cherish most deeply about their history with God. He's going to reference, in fact, we're going to, through the first four verses, each one of them tells us something about what's happening in the transfiguration, and we'll certainly pay attention to that. But in each one of them, it also is hearkening back to a huge part of the story in the Old Testament scripture. So there's kind of like a double meaning in each of the four verses where it's saying, here's something that's happening right now with Jesus and um, uh, uh, the three disciples that he brings up with them, James, um, John, and um, Peter, but then also that it kind of draws from Kind of deep, deep imagery, and I think it's helpful for us to see each one of these as we make it through. So let's, let's just let's just kind of drop in now on each one of these. Each of the verses carries this deep symbolism. So the first verse we see: after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother uh, James, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so first there is the actual what is happening here. Um, this six days that have just passed. We won't read this now, but if you go back into chapter 16, chapter 16 is heavy. Um, Jesus has been telling his disciples with increasing clarity throughout the account of what's going to happen on the cross, the significant, the brutality of what's going to happen to him on his execution, the significance of the fulfillment of being dead for three days, raising again, taking care of all evil, sin, brokenness. 16 is where he most clearly says it. Peter has a really bad response to it because he just can't handle it. So, So some of this, I think, is just like what is actually happening. Six days have passed since chapter 16. So I think what Matthew is telling us here is that this has been a long week. Been a long week. Um, You kind of get the sense that it's just been a real somber week. That just like not a lot has happened. That the disciples are sitting in the weight of this kind of increasing reality. I mean, they love Jesus. I mean, they're in awe of him. They've seen that he's the son of God. They've declared that he's the Messiah. They, they're, they've they given themselves to him, but they love him. He's their rabbi, their master, their teacher, their friend, their older brother, right? I mean, um, they love him. So the weight is really sinking in of what's about to happen. Jesus has made that really clear in the chapter 4. So it's been a long week, right? Six days have passed. So it's been a long week. But this is the first time now where we're, we're starting to see each verse has deep symbolism. So if you think of that number of six days passing by, if you go back to the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, what, what does that hearken when you think of six days that have passed by in a seventh day that's something is happening? And this is this is the Genesis account. All right, this is the creation account of the transfiguration, is reflecting kind of the Genesis story that for six six days God, who Jesus was part of at that time, God is creating the world. And on this seventh day, God sits back and looks at what's good. All right, looks at what God has created. And so this experience of the transfiguration is like that seventh day where God looks at what's good. And this is this is a huge part of the Christian story that when God looks at what's good, God starts with people, right? God says, you know, human beings created in my my, my image. And so this this affirmation that Jesus has is kind of happening on the seventh day. So so this is like there's gonna be four straight ways that Matthew's showing this. So in verse one, Matthew's showing What's happening here to Jesus in this transfiguration, I mean, this goes back to the beginning of the story, the very beginning of the story, right? This is God. This is God creating and recreating and bringing all of creation um, to God's self. Track with me on that? And then verse two. So that's verse one. Long week, but also reflective of the Genesis account. Now the transfiguration begins to happen, verse two. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. And now... I don't know, I don't know if you've ever experienced something humanly where you just like can't find the right words for it. Like words don't just don't seem to capture the moment. So based on the account of James and John and Peter, you know, Matthew's gonna try to capture this with words, but words can't quite capture it. The, the, uh, light and sun is gonna be the best that they can come with. there the, he's transfigured before them. Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as the light. All right? That this is, that you're, you're trying to grasp at artistic words, right? To talk of, um, to talk of Jesus's face shining like a sun. I mean, that's really actually a pretty vivid picture when you think of it, right? To like think of a brilliant sunrise or sunset and saying like Jesus's face looks like that. His face is glowing white as the light. Where Matthew is going here with this, the, the other the other just immense connection and this is such an important part of the story matthew is bringing this back to the was one of the premier themes of the the hebrew scriptures is the glory of god you say that phrase with me glory of god all right this this is one of those words that just is never super easy to find but it it was the phrase that the hebrew people would use to describe just the magnificence of god's presence that even just a glimpse of god's presence was this overwhelming um beyond what the human mind or soul or heart could fully absorb it in a lot of ways, talking of the glory of God, so we'll be just like really mystical and theoretical just for a minute because this does get really practical, but the glory of God kind of speaks to this intersection of heaven and earth, right? One of the reasons that human beings can't fully be in the glory of God is we're not actually built for it. Like we're literally not built for it as human beings. We need it. We need, it's almost like the sun, right? You can't look at the sun directly, but you need the impact of it. Uh, uh, The glory of God, the presence of God is what we need, but it's this kind of constant reminder that we're earthly beings, right? That's the, that's the language of the Genesis account, um, that were earthlings created from the dust. And earthlings can't fully be in the glory of God. And so there is this consistent theme of the need for the glory of God, but all the provisions that had to be taken place to be able to be in the presence of God. And so light was the most typical uh, image of the glory of God. And when, when when Matthew talks about the glory of God, Jesus' face being like the sun, his clothes being like you know white, this is coming back. The the first time that we really see the glory of God accessible to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is when they are commanded to create a tabernacle. And it's a cool image. These are very mystical images. But the glory of God would reside in and over the tabernacle. And uh, um, it was called the glory cloud. This is this kind of funky, wild image that many peoples have kind of run wild with. But the sense the glory of God would show up in the glory cloud and it's described kind of like as this... Almost was like sparkly, had gold in it, glittery. You know, it's just this, again, human words would fail to kind of capture the, the sense of God's presence being there. Uh, but light was the most consistent adjective. And so um, so when the glory of God came in this glory cloud as its light, during the day, it would look like a pillar of fire. Wait, am I getting this wrong? Is it day, uh, no, cloud by day, right? Glory cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So it would be a glory cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night, and it was to evoke majesty and awe, but it was also, it had very clear functionality too. The, the presence of the glory of God meant that the people were covered, that they were protected. It was also a way that God guided them. So when the cloud would move, the people would say, now it's time for us to move. And when the cloud would stop, the people would stop, and they would stay there until the, the glory of God moved again. So there's this kind of immense and central theme in the Old Testament of the glory of God, the presence of God being revealed to the people, and so Matthew showing us is when the transfiguration happens here. The glory of God, which there were these vignettes, there were these instances. there's the tabernacle, um, and we'll get to it. Let me pause in that thought it Comes in the next verse. So this is really summoning the idea of the glory of God. All right, in verse two, when it talks about Jesus's face shining like the sun, his clothes becoming as white as light. This is saying the glory of God is being revealed in a concentrated and distilled manner in the person of Jesus right now. Then this flows into verse 3, which is very connected to this. This um, gets kind of wild, but it's also really cool. Verse 3, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. All right, now, can we pause for just a moment and just kind of like laugh a little bit? at the Like, I mean, this is just, this is a wild scene, right? Like the glory of God, the most kind of precious, but also feared reality in the Hebrew scriptures is being manifested through Jesus in this concentrated, distilled kind of a manner. And then in the middle of that, Moses shows up on one side, Elijah shows up on the other side, and they all start having a little glory chat in the middle of this mountaintop experience. Kind of wild, right? Um, uh, I don't know if it's sacrilegious to bring up a movie in the middle of such a glorious kind of revelation. But you know what movie I kept thinking of when I was reflecting on this? Are there any Star Wars fans in here? Does, does this remind you of anything from Return of the Jedi? Do you remember at the end when it get, like, the, kind of the battle's been won and they're all celebrating and I think there's Ewoks chirping and all that. But like, who shows up there, like, in, like, transfigured almost kind of beings, right? It's um, Obi-Wan and Anakin and Yoda are all there in kind of in these, like, hologram kind of things, you know, cheering on... Luke and Hans and Leia and everybody, right? So I almost, well, I'm, I, I know Jesus came first, so they, he didn't borrow from Star Wars. But I, I kind of, I have to wonder if George Lucas, I seriously have to wonder if he didn't have the Transfiguration in mind when he came up with that, right? It's like there's so many spiritual themes in that movie, right? I bet you he took this right from the Transfiguration. Instead of Elijah and Moses on one side, it's Yoda and Anakin, you know, each on one side. Uh, but that I don't know, that's almost like, I, I, I think we're invited to use our imaginations in this, right? He's trying to bring us into something that happens. So in this third verse, we see Moses and Elijah show up. It's not an insignificant deal. It's not an insignificant detail. Why are they there? It seems like there's pretty good agreement on at least two big reasons why they're there. For one, it seems like it's really continuing this theme of glory. Okay? Um, uh, perhaps the two most famous instances in the Hebrew Scriptures of a person having an encounter with the glory of God, both happened on a mountain, which is what happens here, and um, uh, And there's this interaction with the glory of God, and it's these two. Uh, Moses encounters the glory of God on Mount Sinai, which is what then leads to the Ten Commandments being given to the people. And then Elijah has an encounter with the glory of God in 1 Kings 19. It's right after that passage where, you know, the still small voice comes to Elijah. Uh, Shortly after that, Elijah has this huge encounter with the glory of God on a mountaintop. And then that's what kind of takes him out of his broken state and sends him back out onto mission so for one, it seems to be this kind of inclusion of Moses on one side and Elijah on the other seems to be, again, part of this theme of the fulfillment of who God is in the person of Jesus, right? So one of the things Matthew wants his listeners to see, and for sure us to see, but especially those who are still trying to piece together, how do I make sense of Jesus given the Yahweh I have given my life to? Matthew is saying, look, you remember that priceless story you all carry of Moses encountering God at Mount Sinai? That's, that's fulfilled in Jesus, Remember that Price of story you know of Elijah encountering God on a mountaintop? That's God is showing that that's those were all pointing towards the ultimate expression of God's glory in the person of Jesus. All right, so that seems to be one clear theme of fulfillment. The other clear theme of fulfillment, we've if you've been here for the series, you've already seen this a lot of times. When Jesus is talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, he consistently uses one phrase to kind of capture the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember what he calls it? Uh, he calls it the law and the prophets. Right? Jesus will often say, I've come to fulfill, in fact, that's how he says it in Matthew 5, 17. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. Uh, so the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament that what we often call the Pentateuch. And then the prophets were all the people that came after that to call people to live according to the covenant of God. And so if you were going to have one clear representative for the law, who would that be? I mean, it's clear, clearly Moses. Moses is the one that God gave that law to. You know, it's a broader group to draw from, from the prophets, but many of the Hebrew people believed Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. He went straight to heaven when God called him home. He was, took up a big role in the lore of Hebrew history. And so if you're talking about all the law and the prophets being fulfilled in Jesus, you can't do you can't create a better, probably iconic picture than Moses on one side and Elijah on the other saying, this is him, right? This is him. This is the this is the one Moses saying this is the one that the law was always pointing to. Elijah saying this is the one the prophets were always pointing to. I mean it's it's a really visceral, um, incredible kind of picture that's being painted for us, but you know, for sure for the early Jews who are listening to this of the fulfillment in that way. And then one last one, these are all kind of building up to then what happens to Jesus and what happens to them. But last one, verse four, that's got kind of a double meaning, something that actually happened in the moment, but also is pointing towards kind of symbolism of Old Testament themes being fulfilled in Jesus. Verse four, Peter, trying to make sense of this moment, says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Peter often gets, I don't know, when I read stuff on this, it seems like people often kind of tease Peter a little bit that like, it's this kind of like, I don't know, it almost feels like he's flailing a little bit just trying to figure out something to do with the moment. So it's like, here, I'll build a shelter for all three of you. Um, but I actually think it makes a lot, I mean, for, for one, if you're in that scene, what do you do, right? I mean, what does any of us do if you're seeing Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talk? Well, there's this light so bright you can barely see, right? I mean, it's kind of an unnerving moment in every way, right? Um, but what actually helps make sense of it, and I think Matthew does this on a purpose, uh, the word that's used for shelter when when Peter says, I'll put up three shelters. It's the same word that was used for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And the tabernacle, again, was where the glory of God resided and where there was all these kind of elaborate systems you went through to acknowledge your need for the glory of God, but also your respect and awe for the glory of God. So I actually think Peter's drawing from his Hebrew tradition when he says this. He says, clearly, we're having some kind of an encounter with the glory of God. We all know... In the Old Testament, that when the glory of God came, it was a dangerous kind of reality. Um, let's build a tabernacle. Maybe all three need a tabernacle. Right? I mean, maybe that's the one place where he can't make sense of all of it. But but still, the instinct comes from the Old Testament tradition of what to do when you're coming in contact with the glory of God. So Peter says, "Let me build a let me build a tabernacle for each one of the three. Maybe that's the right thing to do." Which I think is Matthew's way of helping us to see that the disciples are overwhelmed by this moment they realize they're in the presence of something very rare they're in the presence of something very special um, but they're also they're, they're finding themselves in a story where I mean there's actually pretty explicit rules when the glory of God shows up for Moses at Mount Sinai you couldn't touch the mountain with uh, the, the rules were don't touch the mountain you could be killed by touching the glory of God right so they knew this was not something to mess with so Peter's trying to make sense of this whole thing right and um, uses the word tabernacle to try to make sense of it which I think is not introducing something new. That's starting with the six days and then going through with Jesus shining like a light, and then going through with Moses and Elijah being there. And This is showing they're trying to make sense of this interaction with the glory of God. Track with me? Alright, so those are those are kind of all setting it up. Now let's go, let's go into five verse five. Continue on with this. Now we're gonna start moving towards maybe what would this mean for us. So verse five. While Peter's still speaking, which is kind of a funny image, actually. Peter's still babbling about how he wants to build uh, tabernacles for them all. And, and, God, and God just keeps going. While, while Peter's still speaking, a bright cloud covers them. Right, So again, very just like mysterious, mystical, wild language. So this kind of almost like glory cloud covers them. And a voice from the cloud says, This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, this is the second time in the book of Matthew um, where heaven and earth kind of converge in this kind of a way, where they are present at the same time, where there's the human reality, but then the voice of heaven speaking. Anybody remember what the other time where heaven and earth come together and the voice of God speaks? Where's the first time this happens? We've done it in this series feeling nervous. You feel like it's the wrong answer if you say uh, there are. where where else did Jesus hear these words? This is my son with whom, huh? Yeah, the baptism of Jesus, right? Um, So Matthew, in particular, is drawing these as bookends. Um, uh, For Jesus, for God in the flesh, this is what it looked like when heaven and earth came together for him. It happens in the beginning part, before Jesus is being commissioned to go into his work, where he hears the voice of heaven say over him, this is my son with whom I love and with whom I take great pleasure. And now we see he's getting ready to go to the cross. And once again, he hears these words, this is my son with whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And we'll keep going here in just a moment, but I I guess as we're just making our way verse by verse and I'm just inviting you to kind of like let it happen slowly just to see how it all connects together. Yeah, I think this is, if Jesus in the flesh is showing us what we need in the flesh, how significant is it that Jesus didn't need to hear this just once but twice? How how significant is it that on the front end before he'd ever done anything, Jesus needed to hear these words of who he was to God and how heaven itself saw him and then as he's getting ready at the end to do the hardest thing he'll ever have to do? I just you just can't overstate that enough, right? That like, to live into the, not only who we are at an identity level, but to live into our sense of purpose. To have to come back over and over and over again to the voice of heaven. When the glory of God shows and the voice sounds like this, that this is my daughter, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And I think this is really so core to what's happening in the rest here. Let's go now to verse six. So God has just spoken over Jesus. And as we get ready to go this, I guess the other thing I'd point out, it's, I mean, I would suspect that even when the baptism of Jesus happened, that all those who heard it and then those who heard about it later on, even though they knew it was for Jesus I mean he's being commissioned, I think they knew it was for them too. But now we see it's clearly not just for Jesus, it's for them too. That's one of the really interesting things about the transfiguration, right? Because God's talking to Jesus, but then he finishes by saying to them, hey, this is my son, listen to him, right? So it's very clearly for them as well. So it goes into verse 6 now. So the three disciples who are there, James, John, Peter, they heard this, and they fell face down to the ground, terrified. So they hear God speak over Jesus. They fall face ground to the ground, terrified. Now, what's happening? I actually think there's probably a lot of things happening here. And again, I think if we kind of just let our imagination take us into the story, I mean, we can probably identify with a lot of the things. So for one, they know their history. They know that whenever the glory of God shows up, it's this... Um, kind of profound, unusual thing that the stakes are very high. So I think that just like when Peter talks about, let me tabernacle for each of the three. So I think they know their history of that Two, I do think this is, oh boy, I could like go a long time on this one. I, 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 I can I do like a 60 second diversion? I like don't want to go too far off, but I remember, I remember actually being afraid of heaven when I was younger Um, I kind of always thought like earth is probably the fun part of the story and then heaven's going to be like super boring, but you want to make sure you're in, right? Because eternity's a long time. But, you know, my mind in a very unhelpful way used to like, I don't know, I think I was influenced more by Hallmark than I was the Bible, you know, but I kind of always thought of like chubby angels singing and leading worship songs all the time. And I didn't really like worship all that much growing up. So I just thought, man, that's going to be a lot of singing in heaven, a lot of listening to sing. It just did not seem like something that was super appealing to me. Um, If... What the Bible says is true, and I believe it is. If what is most true about God is that God is love, and what's most true about us is that we are loved by this God of love, then what that means is in heaven, we're going to be able to know something of love that literally our minds can't even comprehend on this side of heaven. Right? When Paul talks about, like, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no, uh, whatever he says after that, no imagination has imagined, that's kind of how I put it in there. Um, I, what I do think he's talking about, just like when he prays in Ephesians 3, that the, the 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 love of God, may the width of God's love and the depth of God's love and the height of God's love, may may the immeasurable nature of God's love continue to like come into you in a deeper and deeper kind of a way. I really, whatever instances we've had of love, whether it's a parent who loves you, a lover who have loved you, a child who has loved you, a dog who's loved whatever, wherever you have seen love, those are like the most microscopic glimpses of what's going to be possible in heaven. Um, uh. We are going to we are going to be able to see love and be seen by love to experience love in a way that we cannot comprehend, which I actually think is at the heart of why when the glory of God manifests itself we that's like the instinctive reaction is to fall prostrate. I don't think it's because we're meant to be afraid of God. In fact, I think we see that clearly in this passage. That's not what it's meant. I think John the apostle says in First John four. This is clear. He says anybody who's still in fear of God does not know perfect love. Right. Um, fear is not meant to be the response, but I think it's the initial response because the glory, the the essence of who God is, I actually just think in the best ways possible is just overwhelming for us in our human bodies. I think our human bodies just like cannot even begin to absorb the love that's inside of the glory of God. I think, again, I think we get little glimpses of this. Like when somebody truly loves you unconditionally, like you do something stupid and they just like meet you in a place of love or you're filled with fear and insecurity and they meet you in a place of love. Even in a human sense, I think we get a we get a sense of the overwhelming nature of love and how we're undeserved. We almost can't receive it when somebody shows love. I think the glory of God like that, is like that. I think when we see the presence of God in an unvarnished form, Like it's the purest essence of love. And in this side of heaven, like this is what I actually think glorified bodies are. I think glorified bodies like amps us up by like a thousand times X, right? Where we can be in the presence of love in a way that these human fleshly beings can't because we still look like us in the glorified sense. When Jesus comes back, he still looks like Jesus, right? Um, But I think what glorified bodies does is lets us be in the presence of love in a way That we can't be fully. So I think that's some of what's happening here. I think they don't know what to do with this. And then finally, I think when you're in the presence of God, you become so aware of how unfit you are for God's love, of your own flaws, your own mistakes, your own regrets, your own guilt, your own shame. I think there's something about the presence of God that also brings those things to a heightened sense of awareness. I think all that is happening with the disciples here. I think when it says they heard God say to Jesus, this is my son whom I love, whom I'm pleased with, when they're experiencing the light, the glory cloud, this cloud is enveloping them, I think they see who God is, who Jesus is with absolute clarity. I think they see who they are, and they just collapse. And it's interesting, it happens so fast, it seems like it's the same phrase, but I don't think it's the same thing. It says, they fell face down to the ground, comma, terrified. Right. So I, I think this is all mixed in together. They fall to the ground prostrate, overwhelmed, and then they're terrified. Right, So um, uh, I, I, I think the fear is something different than the, I actually think even in the best form, we probably will fall down prostrate whenever we see the presence of God because it's so overwhelmingly good. But I don't think the terrified part is supposed to stay there. And that's where I, that's where the story goes next. This is where we'll end is in this last verse. Verse seven, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, Jesus said. Do not be afraid. Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. Y'all know, the, y'all know that five love languages thing that Gary Chapman made really famous. You've heard of those before? The five love languages, how we show love. It's words, physical touch, acts of service, gifts, quality time. You've heard those before? I always think it's a fun exercise to kind of share what, your, what, your, what yours are. For me, I think this is some of why this feels like such a tender moment. I'm like so far and away Words and touch. Those are like so my love languages, which makes this so tender to me because when you are scared, and you have you know this for yourself, when you're scared, when you're anxious, when you're filled with insecurity, if somebody just uses words, sometimes that's not enough, right? When somebody says it's going to be okay, you know, things are going to work out, sometimes words fall flat when you're feeling overwhelmed, you know, heightened in a state of anxiety or fear. And so I think it's so fascinating that Jesus does use words, which is important, but that's not where he starts, is it? He starts by touching them. He starts by touching them, which is really significant. right? In the Old Testament, you couldn't touch the mountain when the glory of God was there. Now the one who's created the mountain is there showing the full glory of God in him, and he touches them. And again, I would, I would invite you to use your imagination in these. What does it feel like to be touched by Jesus when you're in the midst of fear and insecurity? Like, what, is that, what does it feel like to have... God in the flesh rub your rub the back of your neck and say don't be afraid I mean what mm, I, I mean how many years did Peter James and John carry that with them how many times when they felt when they faced circumstances that were defined by fear and insecurity how many how many times do you think they drew back on that moment where the god of the universe touched them in their deepest moment of fear put their put his hand on them, and then followed it with those words, don't be afraid, right? On one hand, it's like logically makes sense why they are afraid, and yet the God of the universe, the God of the flesh, puts his hand on them and says, don't be afraid, right? He echoes the words of John who says, in perfect love, there is no fear, right? Jesus puts his, his hands on the disciples, tells them not to fear, and then it concludes with this, verse 8, When they looked up, so again, they had been prostrate in a prayerful position. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. All right, so the thunder's gone, the lightning's gone, the glory cloud is gone, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone. All right, and like there's, there's like something very fitting about that, right? We all have our moments along the way that feel like mountaintop moments, but clearly those are not what's meant to be the norm every day. But you know what is the norm when all that goes away? when the thunder goes away, the lightning goes away, the sensation goes away, the like heightened sense, even of the presence of God, even when it all goes away there, they look up and it's them and Jesus together. It's them and Jesus together. And I think this is, when I think of what I hope for, for what we would take from this, we've now really looked at some of what Matthew hoped that his hearers would take away from this, of seeing the fulfillment of everything that happened in the Hebrew Scriptures in the person of Jesus. But where this thing ends, for sure, for Matthew, James, and Peter, but I think for Matthew himself, I think what Matthew himself is coming back to is this reflection on the glory of God that is seen in the person of Jesus, but that when the glory of God comes near, when you come near the glory of God, when heaven and earth intersect, Jesus hears the words of God over him that he's God's beloved and then Jesus, the Son of God transfers these words to us and puts his hands on us and says in the same way I am the beloved so too are you. In the same way that I am the Son of God so too are you or the daughter of God so too are you. In the same way that God takes delight and pleasure in me so too does God take delight in you. And so it's this kind of wild combination where it's like, don't be, a f- like, come near the glory of God, which is mystical and mysterious. And I, I think one of the things I like most about this passage, when you're describing, when you're trying to describe the reality of what it's like to be in the presence of God, like, words just don't quite do the trick. It's just, when you come to know in deeper ways who God is, which then always results in knowing better than who you are, when you have those, like, increasing revelatory moments, those moments of illumination, you can't quite find the right words even for it. You can talk about light and sun and no fear and glory clouds and thunder and light. I mean, it's, it's, these are the kinds of human attempts to describe what it's like to touch the transcendental. But make no mistake, that is actually, when Jesus tells us to pray for thy kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus is inviting us more and more into that space of seeing and being seen, of knowing and being known. And I think Matthew constructs this in such a way where there's these mystical, beautiful things that you can hardly wrap your mind around, and then something so practical and concrete at the end. When it's all over, it's them and Jesus together with his hand on them, with his words over them, reminding them that they too are God's beloved, that they too are God's source of delight and pleasure, that they too are children of God, and that this is supposed to be what sustains them for the work of head. The same way Jesus needed to know this so he can head towards the crucifixion, so too we need to know it. God knows there's a whole bunch of other voices that will tell you who you are. And usually those aren't gonna sound like beloved. All right? We need in the the light in this represents the spirit. Sergio, I told you I wasn't gonna use this, but I am gonna use this. Let's finish with this verse. Um Sorry, I know I'm going long, but this is like a really, such a beautiful thing. Can you go to the 2 Corinthians one, if you can still get that? Um, if that's still, oh, there it is, thank you. So, uh, if you've got your Bible, stay, stay in that. I promise just, this is the last minute on this. So, the word transfiguration that's in chapter 17 um, is a very specific word for transformation, it's the greek word metamorphoo where we get like metamorphosis and so when it describes the transfiguration of jesus that word's only used in two other places it's used in romans 12 we don't need to go through this but that famous verse where the where paul puzzle paul he clearly is drawing from the transfiguration in romans 12 he says do not be conformed to the patterns of this world but be what Transformed, that's this exact same word. You could actually literally say transfigured there. Be transfigured um, by the renewing of your mind. Be like literally transformed by the renewing of your mind to think differently because of Jesus. And then this is the one other place it's used. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 3. So that first part of the verse is very famous. Now the Lord of the spirits, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now, um, Paul is drawing on the transfiguration, drawing on the story of Moses, experiencing the glory of God. Um, uh, Paul says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord just the word Glory are being transformed, being transfigured, the exact same word, metamorpho, into the image of God with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a whole lot we can unpack on here. Here's all I want to say about that. This is, I think, again, the language of heaven and earth. I think what Paul is saying is, we are on this journey of transformation. And this is the essential mark of transformation that that you can desire the glory of God, you can hunger for the glory of God you can behold the glory of God and contemplate to reflect on it knowing that you're being transformed into this image of Jesus So you, you are on your way and this is why I brought that heaven thing earlier because I don't think it'll, it'll become fulfilled completely until we're in an eternal state we just prayed for our dear sister Mia who lost her mom we grieve always when we lose somebody in the human realm there's no question I'm not trying to belittle that or minimize that at all period but there, this is the Christian hope that's so unique: is to know that Mia's mom right now is like all the way there now. She is all the way there. She's no longer physically blind. She can she can see in every kind of way, and is experiencing love in a way we just literally can't even comprehend right now. And that. We're on this journey from there to there, but it's not just a fixed binary thing. It's not like you're just stuck here and then someday you'll be this. That God, by God's Spirit, invites us into a deeper and deeper revelation. And that's what the word reveal means. It just means to see something you didn't see before. God's inviting us into this deeper revelation, a deeper illumination of who God is and who we are. And I know it probably feels like we come back to that really often here, but that's because the Bible comes to that really often, right? This is this is the this is the driving image of how transformation is thought of in biblical terms, right? which is where this passage is so fascinating. The Apostle Paul uses transfiguration language here. He says, we're on our way. We're contemplating the glory of the God. We're being transformed, transfigured into his image with, ever, which, with uh, ever-increasing glory and then reminding us that it, it's not, this isn't a thing you strive for. This isn't a thing you do. It comes from the Lord, by the Spirit. Just in the same way for the disciples, they weren't—they—they did not manufacture that at all, right? This is a revelation of who God is, within which increased the revelation of who they are, which then gave them a different kind of power to live from, a different kind of substance as they moved into the work ahead. Amen. We—we—we we, we, can we actually stand for prayer during this because I want to really invite you to, as, as best you can, to kind of lean in. So if you're able, if you'd stand, and I would just ask that you would join me in prayer here, and I'm going to kind of we going to kind of move move us into this just kind of a time of reflection based on this account. So, God, as we read this like really interesting and fascinating passage of your transfiguration, and we don't want to miss this, it was about you. It's about you being revealed for who you are. It, it was about who God is. We, we, we clearly see that. And yet, without question, without question, this was also for the disciples' transformation that their transformational journey was linked to an increasing revelation of who you are, which always leads to an increased revelation of who we are. So God, now in this moment,
0: hmm, and
1: this is such a wild idea if if somebody's not experienced this before, but I'm going to invite all of us into this. What does it look like to be alone and yet in community with Jesus. We think of the three of them alone yet together in the presence of Jesus. This may stretch some of us. This may be some of a, out of some of our comfort zone. Of course, for others, this is going to be what their heart and soul crave for. But we all come together in this moment. What does it mean for us alone right now and yet in the context of community to be with Jesus? I think the first part of that, God, is that when we're with Jesus in a transformational way, we get a clear view of who you are. And so in this moment, we all all come to this moment with the different ways that we've come to see who you are. Some healthy, some unhealthy, some very aligned with how the Bible talks of it, some very much not. Uh, But we invite you, we beg of you, we can to show us who you are. When we pray, show us your glory. Help us to get a sense of the magnificence of that, the awe of that, the mystery of that, and yet also to remember that it's not something to be feared. It's not something to shy away from. It's something to as we move towards transformation, we long for that. We long to see you for who you are and to bask in the light to allow it to cleanse us, renew us, strengthen us, purify us. I think the second thing that comes to me as I reflect on what it must have been like for the three of them to be together and yet alone with you They got the gift of knowing what it's like to see God looking at you through Jesus. And I know this takes some of our imagination to do this, but I'm praying that all of us would be able to, through our hearts and minds and imagination, almost be able to transport ourselves into that same type of moment where the God of the flesh gently, tenderly, lovingly puts his hands on us puts his arm around us or even I just am going to invite you as you're praying like what does it feel like for you for the God of the universe to touch you to look at you to tenderly let you know that you are loved to assure you that there's nothing to fear in his presence to remind you that being able to sit in this moment even if it's uncomfortable is at the heart of transformation that as Jesus was transfigured, so too are we by the Spirit. Oh, I wanted to stay here for a moment. Can you can you allow yourself to be looked at by God in the ways that Jesus looked at them?
0: Mm.
1: God when we get a revelation of who you are and when we get a revelation of how you see us it always and fundamentally changes how we understand ourselves we can try to remind ourselves all day long that we're the beloved but we don't know if our voice is authoritative enough to truly mean anything but we remember that the God of the universe the God who's created all the God who created over six days and spent the seventh looking at that which was good Elder Keith prayed that in prayer and praise today that before there was original sin, there was the original blessing, there was the God who looked over that which was good. That's the authoritative voice that must become the loudest. This must be the voice that forms who we are. We need each other as mirrors to that voice, as reminders to that voice, as affirmers to that voice. But the ultimate voice comes from you, the one who gently and tenderly puts your hand on us and says, do not fear, listen, listen to the God who calls you God's own." It'll only be hours from now that we start hearing voices that call us other things. I'm sure for Matthew, the tax collector, he he heard a lot of things that didn't sound like beloved. I'm sure for Peter, after all of his mistakes, he heard many things of who he was that was not beloved. And yet this is our transfiguration. This is is what leads to the increasing change of who we are. To see you. To see you see us. To see ourselves as you see us.
0: Thank you, God.
1: Thank you that over and over through these scriptures, these aren't things we're going on the search for. This is, we're just following through the storyline and over and over again we see the importance to you of showing us who you are how you see us how you want us to see you and see ourselves may we continue to be transfigured transformed by that word by that power by that touch in your name we pray amen as we prepare to finish off this time together you know the word benediction means a good word a good word to go out on on so I would remind us from this passage that as we look at this transfiguration of Jesus, we're seeing a window into how God thinks about transformation. And so let us remember our own transfigurations, our own transformation is always going to include seeing God more clearly. That's what God wants is for us to see God more clearly, to see God see us, how we see God, how you think of God looking at you, and then from there, how we see ourselves. you continue on in your transfiguration your transformation journey don't forget ash wednesday this week black history month friday event new members if you can sign up on the way out may you continue to be transformed by the god whose glory calls us into the deeper heights of who god is and who we're meant to be and all god's people said amen love you all